Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person seeing all the images of fire, all the fires burning. And I'm remembering when I saw El Gore's movie, Inconvenient Truth, 2006, so 14 years ago. This is exactly what was predicted. Um, in Iowa, 30 days ago, a rare inland hurricane hit. Um, the derecho um, damaged uh, 57 counties, 8.2 million acres of corn, 5.6 million acres of soybeans, and 57 million bushels of grain storage. Um, that happened on, uh, on August 10th. Um, Holly um, uh, Spangler, Spangler with the farmprogress.com, she was writing about this. And she said this, she writes this, Entire cornfields for miles and miles and miles were left ragged and mostly flattened. We've all likely seen tornado damage at one point or another in our lives, a devastated barn, bin, shed, or house. Unbelievable power levered levered in a particular location. This was like that, except it went on and on for hundreds of miles. She continues that our collective heart aches for the farmers who are experiencing this. Our collective heart also aches for the people who are experiencing the historic fires. And our collective heart aches for the life forms that are now going extinct. The solution is not to pretend. We need to take our collective pain and our grief and listen. Listen to what the earth is telling us. We need collective action to adapt. We need reciprocal relationships with reality. Climate change and our food systems are deeply linked. Our conventions in the egg system, the monocultural approaches are falling, are failing. Um, and um, so this week, uh, Thursday, September 10th, there was a story um, from Minnesota Public Radio's um, Kristen uh, Marone. And she talks about the uh, years-long efforts to prevent the conversion of Minnesota's pine forest into potato fields. Um, one farmer plans to, um, iter- the way that the farmers are doing the uh, water um, is is upsetting uh, clean water advocates, and they're trying to stop this. Um, so on today's show, we're going to be talking about small farmers challenging conventional agriculture in Pineland Sands. Uh, late in the program, farmer Ryan uh, Pesh, who has worked in community economic development since 2004, will be joining us. And right now, we'll be talking with farmer Kathy Connell. Hi, welcome to Food Friend Radio, Kathy. Hi, how are you today? Good. As I said, I mean, there's just so much dramatic news with the fires and all of the evidence Uh, of climate change. I mean, it really is hard to take it all in. It's kind of scary, so much at once, yeah. Yeah, it is. So tell us about um, yourself and the area of Minnesota you farm. Well, uh, we live up in Wadena County. It's uh, notorious for being one of the poorest counties in the state. And uh, part of that reason is that uh, a lot of the land here is not particularly good for agriculture, and we don't have lakes for tourism, and uh, we don't have a lot of manufacturing. So living up here can be a struggle, that's for sure. Um, We've lived here, we moved back to this area in 87. So we've been back quite a while now and uh, have, you know, established a a little homestead that um, we raise most of our food. And actually, that's what we did for years when we were raising our children. We tried to raise as much of our own food as we could. And then for a while after the kids left home, I was an organic farm inspector and then retired from that to 
being uh, a market gardener and selling produce at farmers markets and uh, restaurants and some well what you'd call health food stores or natural food stores and we phased from that into growing seed for uh, seed companies and now we are honestly I'm retired <laughs> I really am retired <laughs> so tell us about this land what does it look like what's this area like if you if you look at land that's undisturbed when we moved here potlatch owned the land and what they would do is they would plant pine forests and then take them down in 30 35 years I'm not sure what their exact timeline was and replant the forests. And so primarily, you know, we are the gateway to the pines is the way you often hear it stated. Um, it's sand. It doesn't, it, it often gets crispy during the summer because it doesn't take a very long period of time at all without rain for things to go dormant and dry up. And so it's frequent that the grass and weeds will be crispy at least several times during the summer. Um, it's, uh, there are some lowlands and wetlands, and there's some rivers and streams running through it, and it does have a beauty of its own. But it is not uh, good land for trying to grow crops on. You know, I'm going to quote from the um, article uh, from the uh, Minnesota Public Radio story that uh, the North Dakota-based R.D. Offit, the nation's largest potato grower, has been buying and clearing forest land in Becker, Hubbard, and Wadena counties in recent years to make way for crops. Um, they have bought 12,000 acres of forest land in north central Minnesota and could eventually convert uh, as much as 42 square miles of forest to. Uh, to integrated uh, potato fields. Is this conversion of pine forest a good idea? Uh, not in my mind. Um, let me count the reasons. There's almost too many to count. This land, as I said, the base is sand. So it is sandy. I mean, it is sandy as in when my husband built our home, he did not have to purchase sand to make concrete. <laughs> the sand here was clean enough to make concrete. So it is like the sand you'd find in a child's sandbox. And for that reason, it doesn't hold moisture, and for that reason, it doesn't hold uh, minerals or uh, different kinds of fertilizers very well. And they just wash through. Sand is just little particles of glass, basically. And that's Sand doesn't hold on to anything. So if you're trying to grow crops like corn or potatoes here, you have to apply water frequently. You have to apply fertilizer frequently. If you apply nitrogen fertilizer here, and we have a two-inch rain or even a three-inch rain, which with the way things have been changing, that's not uncommon now, that fertilizer gets washed below the depth of the roots. So you have to apply fertilizer again. Since there aren't, you know, there's so little organic matter in the soil and little or no clay in the soil, there's nothing there to hold the minerals and the nutrients. So they aren't going to be available for plants unless you keep constantly applying them. 
So the only way to grow successfully on this sand is to increase your organic matter. And typical situations of frequent plowing break down the organic matter that's in the soil and encourage the bacteria to break it down even faster so that it disappears. And when you yeah. when you retain organic matter in the soil, that actually combats climate change. Yes, you're adding carbon. You're pulling carbon. You're adding carbon to the soil and storing it in the soil. You're putting something there that will hold moisture, and you're putting something there that will hold whatever fertility is available. So, so tell us about how how have you been able to grow on this sand soil, and what do you grow? I, by adding organic matter. Um, right now, we're growing typically the things that most people would grow if they wanted to try and have a self-sufficient lifestyle. I do grow a flower corn for myself that I can't purchase because I can't eat wheat, so I use that in the place of wheat. But regrow corn, beans, squash, cabbages, lettuces, carrots, beets, cucumbers, melons, um, chards, uh, kale, greens of all kinds. Uh, pretty much, you know, our, our diet can be primarily what we produce in our gardens. And we do it by adding organic matter. And uh, for us, we don't raise livestock. So for us, that does not mean manures. Uh, that means leaves and grass clippings and green manure crops and garden residue and um, wood residue, I use a lot of wood chips as mulch on some things like blueberries and trees and things like that. Anything I can get my hands on in that way, I, I do use to build and, and encourage the soil to hold minerals and encourage the soil bacteria and fungi to do their jobs. One of the things I love that you said in the um, uh, story on um, Minnesota Public Radio is, um, I think it makes food sacred to you then. I think you begin to understand the connections between how everything, every system on the planet works. And uh, I don't mean to go all spiritual on people. This isn't something I usually do. I don't usually share my spiritual beliefs. But if you stop and think about it, one of the first things... Um, and I respect all religions, but one of the first things the Christian religion told us in Genesis was, and we were commanded to tend the garden. Uh, we weren't commanded to knock it all down and do it the way we thought we should do it. We were commanded to tend it. And to me, this what this means to me is that these systems are all in place and work beautifully. And our job is to observe them and figure out how to use them to benefit us and then nurture and encourage the systems that exist rather than believing that we can knock it all down and replace it with what we feel is is going to create the most income for us. Right. So, when we're knocking things down, we're not really seeing what's there, which has been um, a human problem for hundreds and hundreds of years. So yeah. we're get, we're going to need to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk more with uh, farmer Kathy Connell, um, and we're going to talk about um, converting pine forest into potato fields in Minnesota. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a 
sad song and make it better. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking about um, the conversion of Minnesota's pine forest into large potato fields. Um, we'll be talking later on the program um, with uh, with Ryan Presh um, yeah, from the West Central Minnesota area. But with us right now is farmer Kathy Connell. And um, Kathy, tell us a little bit more about your personal background with the story. I mean, is this the area you grew up in? Um, tell us a little bit about that. Actually, I grew up back east uh, in Maryland and Virginia, and that's why I know I still have a little bit of an accent. I tried to get rid of it, but apparently it shows up. And uh, I ended up coming to Minnesota primarily because Minnesota, Minnesota was the only place I ever drove through that if your car broke down, the next car behind you stopped to help <laughs> Does that make sense? It does. Every now and, and then that, I see a driver's like, you're not from Minnesota, are you? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. And that was not the case back east. And so uh-huh. I knew I wanted to raise my children and be part of communities here. And it, uh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. And and one of the things when you're raising your children, you were food self-sufficient. To a large degree. Um, it's very hard to be totally so. And, you know, I would... And that's just not easy, and I've learned more and more as I've had the experience that I've had. That's one nice thing about getting old is that you can look back and see all the changes and learn from all the experiences. And so uh, we did, when we were raising our children here, we did, uh, at that time I was milking dairy goats. And so we provided milk and cheese, and with that extra milk we raised a couple of pigs and a calf, and uh, so we always had our beef and our pork, and then, uh, oh, a lot out of our garden. And at that time, you know, I purchased um, wheat in bulk and made our own bread, and, um, you know, we we were very self-sufficient food-wise. But we're still very much independent, interdependent on others. It is it is hard to... Um, you bet. In, in finding yeah. that connection. Um, what, yeah, because our locations, our individual locations, will never provide everything we would like to have, you know. So, in other words, I'm not going to ask my husband to go without coffee. <laughs> <laughs> or chocolate, or chocolate. Um, yeah, no, chocolate's mine. <laughs> yeah. So you were quoted in this um, Minnesota Public Radio article, um, and it mentioned that uh, the conversions of the pine forest, um, 12,000 acres of land in north-central Minnesota could eventually be converted, 42 miles of this forest to integrated potato fields. Have you seen some of that change on the landscape? Yes, um, yes, all around us. Um, it's it's kind of heartbreaking because the pine forests, um, they knew how to do what they needed to do here. And so the pine forests would be interspersed with little meadows and uh, you could go walking through them and find medicinal herbs and uh, wild foods and... Um, they just had a unique personality of their own. And quite honestly, you know, a bare field doesn't. Um, Often when we drive the roads here, um, I live near Sabika and I drive to Park Rapids, and in the spring, when the spring winds come, the fields are blowing away across my windshield. Um, 
and those are the potato fields that have been left bare and the soil's all blowing away. Um, the, the soil's being used, it's not really soil, it's a medium for holding plants upright while they're being fed intravenously. <laughs> Zombie farming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of, yeah. So, um, so it, you know, it is. I, I think it's. I think it's important for us to try and raise as much of our own food as we can for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, just to the feeling you get of being part of these natural systems and learning to understand them and appreciate them and having them provide for you when you provide for them. And not only that, we're looking at food safety. I don't know if your readers or your listeners, I'm sorry, if they are aware the USDA puts out a bulletin once a week on food contamination problems, recalls. Mm -hmm. And if you ever paid attention to that and saw what was recalled every week, um, you know, our, our food safety is in question. And you can be more certain of it being safe if you're raising it yourself. Um, there's information that the USDA has that's shown that the uh, vitamin min- and mineral content of our food has dropped since the 50s. It, it doesn't, you know, everybody, you often hear this theory that if you eat your fruits and vegetables, you don't have to worry about taking supplements because the fruits and vegetables will have everything you need. But if they don't have it, you're not going to get it. And it's obvious that they don't have it now. So it gives you some control over the quality of your food if you're raising your own. Um, In a simple form, the leaves from the trees have collected minerals from deep in the ground and dropped them on the ground. And when you incorporate those into your garden soil, you're incorporating minerals from deep in the ground. It's it's natural cycles that you watch and learn from and that can benefit you and the health of your family. Yeah, and and the other thing is the health of our entire communities. And you started by saying that your area is one of the poorest areas in the state of Minnesota right now. Yes. And, yeah. and yet you made a living um, having a market farm. I just, you know, my sweetest dream is that there will be Lots of small farms with young families on them that are able to make the living or at least come closer on just the 10 acres or whatever it is they need. And they'll be able to do that, and they'll be all around us, and our communities will be eating local food. We can grow broccoli here. We don't have to grow to eat broccoli that's been grown and frozen from California. We can grow carrots here. We can grow so much here that we could be supplying our own communities with and benefiting and having all these small little farms. And do you know what my worst nightmare is? No, what's your worst worst nightmare? uh, My worst nightmare is that something will happen. And we live in uncertain times, and I'm an optimist, but I'm so concerned that something will happen like the grid going down in a major way, which it's done before, and all of a sudden we would be dependent on our shallow groundwater for drinking, and we won't be able to drink it because we've poisoned it. Right, um, and and that, especially in your area with the sand soil, um, the nitrates, um, that the, any 
pesticides that go on that land go straight to your water. Straight down to it. Straight to it. Um, right. And uh, so, yeah, and we do still have folks who still, our, our well is a shallow well. Uh, we have water at 20 feet, and I just had it tested again. I get it tested regularly. And at this point, it's it, there. There are no nitrates in it to speak of. It's it's below point one. Awesome. Um, so there are no nitrates. There, there's well, no E. coli in it yet. Um, Kathy, um, my best wishes to you, and I, I love what you said. The sweetest dream is because that's also my shared sweetest dream, and I think uh, it's the sweetest dream of our listeners too. Is that we move to these small regenerative farms where we're yes. honoring water and honoring life. Water is life, and we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back with uh, another farmer from your area. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. Um, I'm Laura Headline, and joining us now is uh, Ryan Pesh. Um, and Ryan, um, in the last segment, we were talking to a farmer also from your area, Kathy Connell. And one of the things she ended with that I felt so moving is that her sweetest dream is that a lot of small families can make a living off the land, five to ten acres, small farms, and we're all eating water-friendly foods, and we're combating climate change. And maybe just taking a big exhale and having a happier life. <laughs> um, what do you think of that vision? Well, it sounds great. And Doesn't it? I would, I would say it's possible. But, uh, you know, we're at this point where we could go either way, right? I mean, you can have that scenario that I think would give us a lot of hope. Have an operator like myself feel a little less lonely and being surrounded by a, a greater community of, of growers. Or we can just have a world where we just have a lot of polluted waters and all the smaller farmers are just pushed off the landscape. So um, it kind of could go either way. <laughs> I know. It could go either way right now. And and uh, that's why uh, I mean, we got to try to help it go the way that we want our children to live in. Absolutely. Yeah, seriously. Seriously. So, Ryan, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, um, I am... Uh, at, at this point, I'm sort of one of these mid-career organic vegetable farmers. I, uh, I, I keep thinking I'm this younger organic vegetable farmer, but I'm not. Uh, you know, I, I started at this gig when I was um, 23, uh, first interning, becoming an apprentice in the St. Croix River Valley at Foxtail Farm, one of the earlier CSAs in the metro area. Um, Sold a little bit at some markets in the Twin Cities before I ended up here in Ottertail County, where I've been uh, growing vegetables commercially, well, since 2004. So uh, my daughter will be 16 this year, and ever since she was, before she was born, we were raising vegetables here. And so, yeah, I mean, I do uh, primarily, you know, half our sales on CSA. We've done farmer's markets. We do roadside stands. Um, you name it. I do a, a lot of things related to growing and marketing organic produce. So the story in the NPR this week was about the uh, conversion of the pine forest um, and had the statistic that uh, the company is about 12,000 acres of forest land in north-central Minnesota and could eventually convert as much of, as 42 square miles of forest into uh, potato fields. Is that a good idea? Well, I would say no. Um, I think one thing for people that, that aren't farmers uh, to realize is that uh, potato farming is 
pretty hard on the soil. Um, and it's also a crop when grown non-organically that uh, introduces a lot of chemicals. Um, you know, if you go into the environmental working group, um, you know, their dirty dozen thing, you know, they, potatoes are often listed up there as, as one of the, you know, most highly pesticide laden uh, vegetables in large part because there's a lot of fungicides used uh, with, with potato ground conventionally. And, you know, just like people have tomatoes in their backyard, and they're all, everyone's always asking about their tomatoes getting blight. Well, mm-hmm. tomatoes and potatoes are in the exact same family. They blight really easily. Uh, so conventionally, people use a lot of fungicides in order to keep that plant alive, looking good, and the potatoes growing. You add that together with the amount of tillage necessary uh, on a potato field and doing that over a number of years, you have a recipe for kind of a, a bad a bad type of crop grown conventionally on ground that is very sandy and allows for a lot of water infiltration. And there you go. You have the reason for uh, why uh, I signed an amicus brief uh, to get involved in this lawsuit um, um, and to kind of, you know, bring shine more light onto this issue. Yeah, so uh, give us Minnesota. just a, a, a 5,000 level view of that lawsuit. Well, um, it's brought uh, it's brought by um, uh, Kathy and it's one small farm in particular bring, uh, asking to uh, have a larger review by the state of Minnesota about the economic or the <clears throat> environmental impact of this kind type of farming in the uh, in that region. So to to take a closer look at its impacts on water. And its impacts uh, on other other neighboring farm operations, and and I mean that's a primary thing that brought me in on it. You know, um, I was asked, "Geez, we're we're having a hard time finding other certified organic operators who will sign on as an amicus brief, saying that they support this suit moving forward. Uh, would you do that?" And when I heard about, it, I'm like, "Well, you know, I mean, I." I know about organic farming, yes, and, and, and you know, I, I can speak to that. But I'm not necessarily, like, right next door, and I'm not necessarily, like, Mr. Potato Grower, by any means. But when I heard it was, you know, my friend Kathy Connell, I said, absolutely, I, <clears throat> I need to step up. And because I know full well, uh, I'm, I'm not like some uh, hydrologist. I can't say all about, you know, water infiltration in the hydrology and aquifers, it's not, that's not my thing. But I do know as a certified organic vegetable operator, the impacts of large conventional operations very near small farms and their impacts, especially in terms of drift, and how that can have a very, very real uh, impact on the economics of, of a small operation. It, it, it doesn't take in, it doesn't take much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you I just mean, get a little bit of drift and you're kind of out of business. I think most and, of our people, uh, most of our listeners know what drift is, but, and we should say that these large potato fields are the potatoes that are being used in, by fast food restaurants like McDonald's. Um, it's the largest potato producer in the country, the Allfit Farms. Yeah. Um, so, so, and, so it can be really hard on small independent farmers when these large farms come in. They put pesticide, which can get in their, the land. What can we do to help? Well, you know, I, I, I think it's I, I think there is definitely a role 
uh, for residents and consumers to help. You know, one is just going uh, a little to your left or to the right in terms of supporting uh, local producers by buying their products. Um, and as citizens, talking to your your fellow citizens or neighbors about the importance of these issues. Um, in my mind, you know, I'm somebody that works a lot around the economics, trying to build supply chains around for local food systems. Um, you know, I work developing uh, food co-op here in Detroit Lakes. I work with other producers over a longer period of time. I've worked on some of the economics around those things, helping the producers sell product. And I think that really is the solution, is to have kind of clearly identified product on a sh- in a short supply chain. That is, there's, a, there's not much distance between the producer and the consumer. And I think it's something that just, you know, it, it, it feels very human and it feels very good. Um, not just in terms of like, I'm, I'm supporting a local producer financially, but, um, there is a lot of pink fuzzies involved in the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? Between, you know, and maybe life know, is full. I, I, I like been, pink yeah. fuzzies. I like pink fuzzies. And I, I love, I well, love yeah, what you just said. Right. It feels very human. And I like also what, yeah. uh, Kathy was saying about, you know, eating as a sacred act. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've been at this long enough, you know, some of the people that have been my CSA members all, all these years keep telling me how much they appreciate me. And it, it, it's, it's very reciprocal. I mean, I, I can't begin to tell you how much I appreciate them, you know, and you get to know people on a very personal level. And I think that's, that's all, you know, that's, that's what makes the world worth living. And I know I, <laughs> right? I, I started this show just talking about the, the fires in California and all the devastation we're witnessing right now. Um, and how much, I mean, you know, we get by with a little help from our friends. I mean, how we can build a functioning ecosystem for both ourselves, for water, and for the future. It, it's, it's, it's our quest of the times. No, that, that's absolutely true. And, and I, I think... I think that's what some what some people appreciate about local farm farmers market CSAs and all this stuff that I'm wrapped up into. It's because it is at a very different scale, right? When when things seem so large and they seem like there's this really big system and I can't really move that system as one individual, it seems it feels daunting and it feels out of control. Um, Whereas some of the things we're talking about, these interrelationships between producers and consumers, eaters and farmers, right? Mm-hmm. It, it very much is in everybody's control. And it gives you a bit of hope about what you can do on a landscape in your very, in, in your neighborhood, in your, in, in your region, in, in your locality. And so, um, you know, hopefully we're not just tilting at windmills and just, you know, pretending something, but, um, I can just tell you from the economics on the side of a producer, it's, it, it actually matters. It actually, over time, builds a business, which in time builds a supply chain, which in time changes the economy. I mean, that's That's exactly right. Works. And there's some really solid research, very, very solid research. So, for instance, David Montgomery, who spoke at the Nobel Conference on the Soil, he's done some great research about, you know, organic farmers make more money than conventional farmers. And we can yeah. talk about the pink fuzzies and water is life. But if you can help people make money, um, that helps on the f- quickest transition to, uh, to sane uh, relationships with our soil. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, anybody can do this math on the back of the envelope 
And a lot of us that are producers, we, we often do math on the back of envelopes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, look, um, I've done a fair amount of research in my day job. And on average, people like myself that are commercial vegetable operators at primarily direct market are doing about $10,000 in sales per acre. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, you know, I've been doing a little bit better. I'm closer to $15,000 per acre. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, you know, I'm doing about $5,000 per acre in direct costs. So if you think about it, what does it take? In, if you wanted to replace a $50,000 a year job, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a person can really do that very realistically uh, with good market supportive customers uh, with as few as six, ten, eight acres, right? And we can um, get funds it, it, out there and help people get those six, ten acres and, you know, own our economy and our food system. Then maybe we can just right. focus on really having good music and art. <laughs> there <laughs> and, you go. And dogs right, and kids totally. and we can play and be mentally healthy, <laughs> right. right? Why not? Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, just that simple math, I mean, anybody can do that math. It's not that hard. Right. It takes some effort, right? And it takes some consistency and time. But you can you can see how you build a business that way. It's not that difficult. The big part of the equation is I have a base of customers that I can sell to and that support me. And I'm not I'm not there to be their um, their welfare case. That isn't what this is. This is an exchange of goods that they see value in, and I spend time, energy, and effort, and a lot of producers do to produce a quality product that eaters. Uh, feel good about buying. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, that's that's a type of economy, that, that circular economy, I think a lot of us think about and talk about in the world of sustainable agriculture that we hope will propel us into kind of a, a new and better future, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's go there. Um, we're going to take a break. And Ryan, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about your day job and how do we how do we move this system forward that's you know, as, 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 as Kathy said, we're on that edge right now. Do we go towards the sweet dream or do we go through Armageddon? I picked the sweet dream. <laughs> Ooh, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant to nurse the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and on the phone with us is Ryan Pesch. Uh, Ryan, tell us a little bit about your day job. Yeah, yeah I'm an extension educator uh, with the University of Minnesota, and I work in community economic development here in West Central Minnesota. So I'm often working with, you know, pitcher, small rural communities, trying to figure out their economic future, um, how to get some economic development going, some business development going in the community. And so, so yeah, I mean, certainly with the stuff we're talking about, I do want to make it explicit so I don't get in trouble with my, my dean. My day job and has nothing to do with this, my yeah. supporting the, the lawsuit, right? So right. there's a lawsuit and then there's my job. So well, and, you don't and I, I, I'm going to go back to how we started this because I thought it was such a, I mean, we are really on a precipice right now. We can try to support small independent farms or keep going towards this larger monoculture. And, and one of the best things for economic development is to have a lot of smaller businesses. And so you're working on creating a co-op. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this is, um, this is outside. This is my third job, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I'm, I'm the last founding, I'm the founding board member of Mana Food Co-op in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. 
And um, we've, we're Minnesota's youngest retail food co-op, so we've been operating since August of 2017. And um, <clears throat> we've actually grown to the point um, now that we're looking to expand from what I call the abandoned Tasty Freeze. It's a tiny little 1,200-square-foot place to a much more visible location in downtown Detroit Lakes. Um, and so, yeah, we've been having a capital campaign ongoing. Um, it was supposed to start, you know, the day the stock market dropped, what, 4,000 points or some crazy thing. But ever since <laughs> the pandemic's been going on, I've been raising funds for that, that transition. So uh, something we're excited about. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an important piece to what we're talking about, kind of building a strong local food economy. Um, you know, that retail piece is important, uh, just as a lot of the other you know, um, co-ops that have been around for quite some time, 30, 40 years, have been a very important player in supporting local producers and building that supply chain between eaters and farmers. You know, we, we play a very similar role in, in our neck of the neck of the woods. Yeah, you actually have quite an extensive background. So you did a, a report on institutional health care market for local produce? Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I do a fair amount of uh, market analysis and uh, financial analysis. Um, we do some what we call farm business management work with the producers on the supply side in terms of like, hey, you kind of get into these questions about, hey, is anybody making money doing this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then on the other side, I'll do uh, market analysis work. I do a lot of it just with, you know, um, small town EDAs and cities where they're just trying to figure out, hey, can our town support three restaurants instead of just two, this kind of stuff. But I also do a lot of the work in market analysis uh, around the local food market. Like, how big is the food market? Um, so in some of those reports I've done, like, you know, there's a lot of talk about farm to institution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was interviewing food, uh, food service people. I'm like, well, how many tomatoes do you actually buy anyways? Uh, so we get into the weeds a little bit to try to get a good picture about how big is that market, right? That hospital over there looks really big. And bet you we could sell him a lot of stuff is, is a general thought. But actually, once you dig into the numbers, you're like, you know, they buy a lot of canned things and not a lot of raw tomatoes. So let's add up just the tomatoes and see how big that market is. And so I do that kind of stuff. Okay. And I've, I, I still, to try to get to this transition, as much as we could help people make money off of the regenerative food system or the food system that's kind to water and soil and to each other, um, I think the better off we are. And so, I mean, what? and one of the things I've heard is so important is to have some type of ecosystem. Like you even referred to kind of being lonely out there. I mean, trying to build up that that ecosystem where the co-op's buying from you and if you have a problem, you know people to ask. Have you seen improvements in that that um, local food ecosystem? Or have you been working towards creating those improvements? You know, it, you know it, it's like night and day. I sort of oversold it in terms of like being lonely. It sounds like I need a date <laughs> or something. I'm happily, I'm happily married. Uh, but you know, when we first moved up here, we kind of were on the what I'd call the organic frontier, if you will, right? Because um, you know we're. 50 minutes from Fargo, we're on the far western part. A lot of people in cities would call it northwestern. I call it west central. But um, I think one thing that you've seen change, and I think this, it's changed quite a bit since I've been here the last 15 years, there are a lot more of um, 
there are a lot more buyers that have interest in local foods, and there's still, but there's still a lot of dabbling in that. But I don't think that's nearly as important. That, you know, the thing that makes me kind of feel good in my heart is that there is a greater community of growers here that know one another and cooperate with one another. And so, you know, whether we're like, you know, we're not making millions. It doesn't matter. We have a strong community of, of growers that look out for one another, care for one another. You know, just just earlier this week, my fellow grower up the road's like, hey, I just had a high tunnel delivered. There's a semi here in my driveway. Can you come help unload this thing? And you're darn right. I just drive on up there. I just CSA boxes the pack. But I ran up there to start unloading heavy metal pipes. I mean, this is just the stuff that we do. Um, it's not necessarily geared towards like this end result of building a business, but it's it's about that end result of just building a community, and that's that's uh, that's changed quite a bit uh, over the time that I've been here. That is really lovely. I mean, one of the things that uh, Kathy Con- Connell, uh, farmer Kathy Connell, shared in that first segment is the way that she ended up in Minnesota is because when she had a car problem, the person behind her actually f- helped fix her car. So how we build this community because we are not things. We're not just we're not just yeah. little money machines working on this little rat. We are living beings. Just as our soil is not just a um, a container for. Um, corn and soybeans and, and glyphosate, it is, it is yeah. it's so much more complex and elegant. Yeah, yeah t- totally. Yeah, I just say it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a human endeavor, right? And um, I give a fair amount of talks to other, other producers, and I'm, I'm always like, yes, I just talked a lot about how you market a good, but at the end of the day, this is a very human endeavor, and the more kind of, uh, the more you kind of let your it might sound kind of hokey, but like your your heart shine, and mm-hmm. you're just very kind of passionate, and just very kind of forthright, and kind of an open person. Um, that's what builds a community amongst farmers, but it also creates that connection uh, with someone at a market, and it creates that connection with other people you're going to work with, and that's it's, it's sort of you as a person embodying the type of type of future that that, that you want to see. Right. We want a future that's that's generous and open and and heartfelt and human. I mean, and that's that that's just a wonderful thing. Yeah. Right. Stay human. um, Ryan, we are all out of time again. Ryan Ryan Pesh, if anyone wanted to contact, is there an email or something for them to check out? Yeah. uh, Lightafarm.com is where they would find me or one word, Mana Food Co-op. All right. Do you want to find the co-op? Light a farm, light a fire. How cool is this? So I thank you so much, Ryan, and I also thank Kathy Connell uh, for joining us on Food Freedom Radio, and thank you for listening. Have an awesome week.